Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be today, looking at verses 1 through 7, um, and really emphasizing the importance of our call to continue in evangelism, to continue in sharing the gospel, and the testimony that we just heard um, is a perfect lead into that text today. So again, Acts chapter 14, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. As you're turning there, I just want to uh, really welcome three groups of people into the service today. Um, first of all, if you are joining us for the very first time, um, I just want to give a warm welcome to you, whether you're joining us for the first time here at Maine or over at East um, or online. Uh, you are really an honored guest. We're so glad to have new people with us each and every Sunday. So thank you for joining us. Second, uh, I haven't been able to say this yet, but I know that over the past couple of weeks, we've started to have a lot of our college students come back in town. Um, and since I was out of town last week, I didn't get to say this, but if you're a college student, welcome back. We miss you when you're not here and it's great to have you. And last, I want to just welcome a very special group of people to to this service, and that is our elementary age students. Um, a few times a year, we do uh, Sundays that we call Worship Together Sundays, and that's where we bring in our elementary age kids into our worship service, and we worship with them, and we remember that they're part of the church now, and we're all in this together as a family, and these days are especially um, special when uh, we take the Lord's Supper with our elementary kiddos in here with us. It's important that they see and observe and participate in this aspect of church life as well. So if you're one of those three groups, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, today we're going to continue on in our study through the book of Acts. This is uh, week number 30 in our study. And so if you're joining us for the first time, let me give you a really high level overview of chapters 1 through 13. In chapter 1, the Lord Jesus gave his commission to his disciples to take uh, his gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, um, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and filled the disciples with power so that they could start taking the gospel out. Chapter 3 through 7 focus on the disciples' witness in Jerusalem and in the city. Chapters 8 and 9 talk about how the disciples start to take the gospel out to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 10 on through the rest of the book of Acts, including where we are now, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, out to the Gentile world. And so that's a um, kind of a progression of what's happened so far. As the gospel has been going forward, many people are believing. The Holy Spirit is powerfully working, validating the message of the apostles through signs and wonders. Um, people are being saved, um, coming to believe in Jesus. Those who oppose the gospel, some of them are being struck down. God's overcoming them in miraculous ways. Um, and what we've, what we've also seen is that pockets of believers are starting to assemble and gather, and we have seen the formation of some of the earliest churches uh, in the New Testament era. And so this, that's a very quick summary of what's gone on leading us up to chapter 14. Let's remember for a moment specifically where we left off in chapter 13. Like always, I like to put the map up on the screen and help us get our geographical bearings. So let's go ahead and put that map up on the screen. You can see um, that, you know, well, first of all, you can see that I pick a, picked a children's map. Um, I got online and the best map I could find came from a children's book, which is very appropriate though, since we have the elementary age kids in the, in the room with us today. But you can see that the, the message of the apostles really started out on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the church in Antioch of Syria, sent Paul and Barnabas out. They went to the island of Cyprus, preached there. Then they went up to Perga and Pisidian Antioch and preached there. And if you remember last week, they were um, 
kind of ran out of, uh, they were run out of town in Pisidian Antioch, and they shook the dust off their feet, and they went to this place called Iconium. Um, Iconium is about 80 miles east of Pisidian Antioch, and you can also see two other uh, cities mentioned there, Lystra and Derbe. Take note of those, because we're going to mention those today in our text, and they'll become important down the road as well. But this is kind of where we left off with the apostles going into Iconium. So with that in mind, we're going to look at chapter 14. We're going to work our way from verse 1 down through verse 7, make some application points at the end, and all those application points are going to tie around the big idea of this text. And really the main call from this text is for Christians like us to continue in evangelism, to continue in sharing the gospel. And so after we, re- we really remember our, the importance of continuing to share the gospel, then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together today and really uh, remember that it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are united together as the church of, of Jesus Christ, as uh, the family of God. And so we'll close our service today by taking the Lord's Supper. So let's look at chapter 14, verse 1. It says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I want you to see right away that it says that they, um, at Iconium, they entered uh, together. Quick little interesting note about Iconium and Paul's entrance into that city. Um, There's a second century apocryphal writing called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. And in that apocryphal writing, um, it really gives us the only written description of the physical appearance of the Apostle Paul. Some of you may have wondered, I wonder what he looked like, you know? Um, I remember wondering that when I was a kid, um, and my pastor kind of mentioned some of what I'm going to share with you, even when I was a young, young kid sitting in the crowd like many of ours are today. But this book of Thecla, uh, book of Paul and, and Thecla, it speaks of a man named Onesiphorus who lived in Iconium. Onesiphorus was instructed to meet the Apostle Paul upon his entrance into Iconium, but Onesiphorus had never met Paul before, so he needed to know who to look for. So the person who wrote in this letter, here's how he describes the Apostle Paul physically. He says this, he is of small stature with meeting eyebrows. Paul with a unibrow, you know what I mean? Bald head, I can relate. Bow-legged, strongly built, of course I can relate. Uh, Hallowed eyes with a large crooked nose. He was full of grace. For sometimes he appeared as a man and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. All right, now that's, that's the one and only piece of writing in antiquity that describes the Apostle Paul. Now, to be straightforward, we don't exactly know if this is 100% true or not. Um, we know that some portions of this book were rejected by the early church as being flat out false, and so they were not recognized in the canon of Scripture. So I am not saying that the book of Thecla is on par with Scripture or anything like that, but I mention it because I remember being an elementary student sitting in a church service like this where my pastor was talking about the Apostle Paul and how he was a short guy with a big nose. And that always stuck out to me. Like, where did he get that from? Well, now we know. He got it from this uh, writing called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. All right? Now, the significance here is that it just talks about Paul's entrance into Iconium. And as we read here, this is the first time that we know of that Paul and Barnabas had come into Iconium. And when they enter, 
they go into the Jewish synagogue. As you recall, the Jewish synagogue was an assembly space. During the week, it was used for a school or a courthouse or a general gathering uh, area. On the Sabbath, it was used for worship and teaching and prayer. But we have to remember, it wasn't just Jews that gathered in the Jewish synagogue. The Jews also allowed God-fearing Gentiles to gather with them there. These God-fearers were non-Jews who still held the God of the Jews in high regard and, and appreciated the Jewish people. And so they were allowed to meet in uh, the synagogues with the Jews. And another tradition that was typical in this day was that when a visiting rabbi was coming into town, then that visiting rabbi was often given an opportunity to speak. And so here comes who we know as the Apostle Paul, then they would have known, uh, known him as Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. So here comes Rabbi Saul. He comes in. He's a guest visitor. And he gets an opportunity to speak and teach in the Jewish synagogue. So it says that Paul and Barnabas were invited to speak and that they spoke in such a way that a great number believed. They spoke in such a way. Wouldn't you have loved to listen to that sermon? I would, have loved, I would love to have a recording of that. I would love to be able to read it, you know. But regardless, it says that they spoke in such a way. We know what that infers. That infers that there is a way that we should speak and a way that we shouldn't speak. When it comes to sharing the gospel, there are ways that we should speak. I think we can all imagine people on the street corner or other typical scenarios when we would say, ah, I think I've heard the gospel shared in some ways that, you know, we probably shouldn't recommend. So how should we? Well, the Bible gives us some instruction. Colossians chapter four, verse six says that it matters that we speak with grace, seasoned with salt, so that we know how to answer someone. Titus two, verse seven and eight says that we should speak with integrity, dignity, and sound speech. First Peter three fifteen says that we should speak with readiness to make a defense for the hope that we have. Ephesians 4.15 says that we should speak the truth in love. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus actually tells us to speak in such a way that we're not throwing pearls to swine, where we're not taking these precious truths and just continuing to try to throw them out to people who have no interest in receiving them. They just want to attack us, right? And that, these are the types of things that we're, how we're instructed to speak. The way we speak matters. Um, it matters that we speak with grace. Um, it matters that we speak about grace, not just about religion or about works. It matters that we speak of Jesus Christ in particular, not just about God or spirituality in general. The way we speak matters. The Apostle Paul wasn't trying to get this crowd to believe in God in general. Remember, there he was speaking at a synagogue. People there already believed in God in general. So he was trying to persuade them to believe in Jesus Christ in particular. And as we study the book of Acts, we'll see that that was kind of Paul's method. He would go into a city, go into a synagogue. He'd have a crowd that was ripe for religious conversation. They're there because they believe in God. And as he speaks to them, he would start to appeal to the Jewish scriptures and say, hey, you believe in these Jewish scriptures. These Jewish scriptures prophesied about a Messiah. And he would show from the Messianic prophecies how Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth, fulfilled those prophecies. How he was indeed the son of God who came to earth. How he lived a sinless life but died like a sinner on a cross at the hands of the Jews. How God raised him from the dead on the third day as was prophesied in the Old Testament passages. And that this was all done so that by believing in Jesus Christ, mankind can have forgiveness of their sins and be reconciled to God. That was the essence of Paul's message. That's the essence of the gospel. And I don't know about you today, but I'm so thankful that somebody shared that gospel message with me. 
And I'm thankful that by God's grace, through his saving grace, I can be numbered among the many over the past 2,000 years who have believed. It says here that a great number believed. Have you ever been in a setting where the gospel has been proclaimed and a great number believed? I wonder, you know, some of us, I can see some of you nodding your heads. Yeah, you've experienced it. You know what it's like. You've heard the gospel go forward and seen a great response. Just this past summer, we had one of our mission teams uh, leave here and go um, to, on a mission trip to Uganda. While they were there preaching the gospel, guys, in that one week while they were there, 269 people made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. That's not just some story made up by some people we don't know. These are from people in our church who went. Uh, I hear those numbers sometimes and I think to myself like, wow, Lord, like, is that real? I want to experience something like that. And I think it's important for us to remember that sometimes the Lord does it, you know? The proclamation of the gospel goes forward and sometimes people truly believe. And that's what's happening here in Iconium with Paul and Barnabas. But there's, it's not without opposition. Look at verse two. It says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there was great reception by some and there was great rejection by others. It says that there were these Jews who did not believe and what that means is that they were adamant unbelievers. They flat out denied what the apostles were preaching. And it didn't just stop there. It says that they went out and stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. So think of somebody pouring poison into a drink, right? You've got to pour it in there, pour your poison in and then mix it up and agitate it, stir it up and disrupt it all for the point of bringing harm with the end result of bringing harm on someone else. And that's the biblical description of what was going on here. These unbelieving Jews were agitating, stirring up, riling up the crowds with the uh, effect of, of really poisoning their minds and bringing um, uh, the hope that these folks would flat out reject Jesus as the end result. And so guys, isn't that, isn't that still the way it often works in today's culture? We have people who come to consider Jesus Christ. They are new believers in Jesus Christ. And then they leave and they go and interact with some unbelievers, perhaps some unbelievers who are very strongly opposed to the teachings of Christianity. And soon those unbelievers are peppering these new believers with tough questions and strong opposition and objection, lodging insults and accusation against them. And so oftentimes new believers don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. So they can get rattled and agitated and they can get kind of shaken up in their new faith. Sometimes those who are opposed to the message of Christianity will try to poison the minds of believers, including new believers. And it happens today just like it happened in the book of Acts. So how did Paul and Barnabas respond? Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, So they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So you can imagine these unbelieving Jews, hostile to the message of Jesus, they would have loved to just immediately run Paul and Barnabas out of town. But it says that Paul and Barnabas stayed for a long time. And they didn't just stay kind of quietly keeping to themselves or silently kind of sitting on the sidelines. What they did was they spoke boldly for the Lord. And the truth is, guys, this is what faithful biblical leaders will do. When the church is being attacked from within, true leaders don't just run off quickly. Let's go find the next easy, easy place to do ministry. No, they stay 
They teach, they proclaim the truth, they correct and rebuke and refute when necessary. They equip the saints to be able to stand firm in their faith. Um, As you guys know, our church is led uh, by elders. They were shepherded by elders. And we've tried to summarize the responsibility of our elders with four key words. We've said that they are responsible to lead, feed, tend, and defend uh, this church. Lead this church by setting general direction. Uh, Feeding this church by teaching the word of God and overseeing the teaching content uh, in our other ministries. Tending to this flock by making sure that the needs of our church are met through systems of care and systems of prayer. And then defending this flock. And when we say defending, what we mean is guarding this flock. Correcting some sort of false teaching that might come in. Disciplining, even if necessary, removing members who live in unrepentant sin. Sometimes church shepherds and leaders have to defend the church. So defending doesn't mean, you know, you just kind of get all macho and get tough, right? When we talk about biblically defending the church, we're talking about um, defending it through proper instruction, proper teaching of scripture. Uh, Again, um, correction and rebuke when necessary. This is all part of the qualifications for elders in the church. If you read the qualifications for elders in the church, you can read them in part of them in Titus chapter 1. Verse 9 says this about the qualification of an elder. It says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to what? Rebuke those who contradict it. So defending the church means correcting and rebuking. It doesn't just mean faithful teaching. It means standing against unfaithful teaching. And that's part of the responsibility of a faithful leader in a local church. The Apostle Paul speaks of it a little bit differently with um, some different language in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, where he says this, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, de- to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the weapons in our defense of the church are weapons that are used against arguments and opinions and thoughts and knowledge. So defending the church is a work of the mind. Defending is teaching. It's leading people away from falsehood and toward truth. Truth about Jesus, truth from the word of God. And so Paul and Barnabas stay in Iconium teaching, defending the church. They do this for a long time. And as they did, it says that the Lord was bearing witness to his word. So what does it mean that the Lord bore witness to his word? It means that he was validating the message and the teaching of the apostles. And how was the Lord doing that? By supernatural signs and wonders that he was doing through the lives of these men. So I want you to just understand, when these men are faithfully shepherding and defending the church from false teaching and poison, poison that was coming into the church, the Lord Jesus doesn't just stand idly by and say, good luck, fellas. Right? He's with them, working through them in power for the good of the church. The chief shepherd is right alongside the under-shepherds, and he's still able to be right alongside us as we defend his church still today, just as he was doing all through the book of Acts. Now, as the Lord was working, we see that it had different effects on different people. So, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. So what you've got here is both a dividing and a uniting going on. Some people were dividing against the church. They were buying into the poisoned message from these unbelieving Jews. Other people were uniting with the church, believing the message of the apostles and what God was doing there. The simple truth that I want you to understand is this, that the gospel both unites and divides. The gospel unites and divides. It unites the church while at the same time dividing it from the unbelieving world. Why does this happen? What, um, when Jesus told us, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. What did he mean? What's that talking about? When Jesus said, hey, if you follow me, family members are going to turn against each other. What, what's that all about? Here's what it's all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls sinners to repentance, but some sinners love their sin. And because some sinners love their sin, they're not going to follow Jesus. Some people absolutely love the perversion that they're into. Some people absolutely love the substance that they're hooked on. Some people love their money and their materialism. Some people love the, the, the bitterness and the unforgiveness that they have in their heart. They cherish it. Some people love their racism that they don't want to give up. And so they know if they choose to follow Jesus, they're going to have to give up these things that they really hold on to uh, so tightly. So what happens? They will divide from Jesus in order to keep their sin to themselves. The gospel unites the church while dividing it from the unbelieving world. And that's what we see is going on here in Acts chapter 14. The division becomes very obvious in our last few verses here. Look at verse 5 through 7. It says, when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it. So Paul and Barnabas, they learned about this scheme, right? And they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the Jews and some of the Gentiles start to hate this message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And so they decide they're going to try to kill them by stoning them to death. And so Paul and Barnabas, they have to flee. Which, by the way, I know that sometimes maybe we have heard mixed messages about Christians who flee persecution. There's some schools of thought that should say, uh, that say a Christian should never flee. They should never run away when persecution, physical harm comes their way. No, they should grind it out. They should stay faithful, even if the Lord uh, calls them to die for their faith. Uh, I understand what people are saying there, but I think we're forgetting the very plain teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, when Jesus very specifically told his disciples, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another city. Because what have we seen all through the book of Acts? As persecution came on the disciples and they fled, what did that cause them to do? It caused them to take the gospel to the next city. And the Lord advanced the, the broad scope of the gospel even though persecution and suffering comes. So we should never look down on believers who flee from persecution. And we certainly shouldn't be the type of Christian who wants to get persecution or become a martyr, you know. Um, it's okay to flee persecution. That's what Paul and Barnabas did here in our text. And it says that they fled to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Those are two cities that we saw on our map that are southeast of Iconium. I mention these because these two cities are going to become important because of someone who lives there. We're going to find out in the book of Acts that there's a grandmother who lives there named Lois, a mother who lives there named Eunice, and her son who lives there with her named Timothy. 
And Timothy will eventually become the protege of the Apostle Paul, one of his apostolic partners, who Paul writes letters to that are now included in our Bible. So it's very likely that Timothy and his mom and his grandmother, it's very likely that they become believers when Paul makes his way out of Iconium down into Lystra and Derbe. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But for today, I want us to end by focusing on that last phrase of verse 7. Verse 7 says that they went to Lystra and Derby, and there they continued to preach the gospel. That phrase, preach the gospel, in our English language is one word in the Greek language. It's the word euangelizo. It's where we get our English word evangelism. So Paul and Barnabas continue to tell the gospel. They continue to herald or proclaim the good news or evangelize. They didn't quit because hardships came their way. They didn't uh, give up because people were scheming against them. Their goal stayed the same even when their location changed. They just went to the next town and continued on in their mission. They continued on in evangelism. And that's really the main point of this text. They didn't give up. So let me close by giving you three practical takeaways for us today Three application points, they all tie into this encouragement to us to continue in evangelism. First application for us, first takeaway. Church family, remember, God has you where you are right now in order to make Christ known. He has you right here where you are to make Christ known. In our text, all through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas keep changing locations, going from place to place. Their location changed, but their mission didn't. Guys, in our lives, our location may change, but our mission doesn't. Some of you may wonder, why, why are we even here? Why, how did I end up in Beaver Creek, Ohio? How did I end up in the greater Dayton area? And you may think that through in your life. I'm telling you, the Lord has you here so that you help make him known. That's why he's got you here. It's not an accident. It's not some kind of thing that just happened by chance. The Lord is sovereignly working out all the pieces to make his name known. You may think that you came here for college or for a career change or to care for your family or to go to school or whatever it may be. But don't forget, God has you here on purpose. And that purpose is to make Christ known. And don't forget that when the Lord calls you away from here, he's calling you away from here to the same mission. You may get restationed in the military. You may get relocated for your job. You may have to go somewhere to take care of your parents or your, your family members. You could leave here for a myriad of, region, of reasons. But while your location may change, your mission doesn't. Where you are, God has you there on purpose to make Christ known. So, remembering that will keep you on mission sharing the gospel. Second takeaway, as you make him known, there will be times of both great reception and great rejection. Guys, we need to remember, Paul and Barnabas were filled with the Holy Spirit when they went into Iconium. And in their spirit-filled proclamation of the gospel, they experienced great reception, a great many people believed, and they experienced great hardship. So don't buy into this idea that if we're really following the Holy Spirit and we go somewhere, it'll just be all reception. There will be times of great reception. Sometimes you're going to have 269 people in Uganda believe. There have been seasons of ministry for me where I'm like, wow, it seems like every day the Lord's bringing somebody new to faith and somebody else is getting baptized. New people are joining the church. There's been other seasons where it's the exact opposite. Seems like people want to run you out of your family or out of your workplace or out of your church because you're trying to be faithful. 
There's going to be seasons where there's not as much gospel fruit and instead there's hostility. And in those moments, you can wonder, is God really in this? Does he really want me here? You know, is there, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I shouldn't even, maybe this whole Jesus thing is a hoax. Why am I even believing this? I want to tell you, just remember, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you are living on mission to make Christ known, there will be both times of great reception and great rejection. Remember that and you will persevere in sharing the gospel. Third takeaway, church family, just a word of encouragement. Although you may be divided from the world, you are united in the church. Although you may be divided from the world, you are united with the church. I know that some of you have experienced the division from unbelievers in very personal and difficult ways. Some of you have come to Jesus and then your family members started despising you. Some of you joined the church and lost some of your old friends. Some of you came to Jesus, your spouse left you. Some of you accept, some of you embrace Jesus and his teachings and your children think you went crazy. Sometimes the gospel of Jesus divides. I think we need to accept this reality this is the way it will be until the last day. Until the day of judgment, this is the way it will be. On the last day, people will stand before the Lord Jesus and he will divide people, sheep and goats, those he knows, those he doesn't, those he condemns to hell, those he welcomes into his kingdom. This is the way it will be. Sometimes the gospel of Jesus divides, but at the same time, praise God, the gospel of Jesus also unites it has united us together. Five years ago, I didn't know so many of you. And yet, because of the saving grace of God and the way he works his plan, here we are doing life together as a church family. God unites our hearts with his people. Some of you have experienced a beautiful uniting in your heart because of the grace of God. Some of you used to be racist and now you've come to the understanding that people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation are all made in the image of God and you'll be seated with them around the throne. Praise God for that uniting. Some of you used to feel very distant from your parents or your children, but then you came to Christ. And now you have the most important things in common with your children. They believe, you believe, and there's been a sweet uniting. Some of you were once filled with bitterness and unforgiveness, and some of you have gone through some things, difficult things with people, where it was just so heavy on your heart, and you had some dis division in your heart against other Christians. But then the Lord, by his grace, taught you to forgive as you've been forgiven. And there's been a mighty reconciliation, a restoration of broken relationships. Guys, the gospel of Jesus may divide us from the world, but it unites us with each other. And that's a beautiful thing. It's what we're gonna express today as we come to the table and take the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and then invite you to come to the table. And as we come to the table, this is an expression of our unity in Christ, our oneness in Christ. We are the church. You're gonna have the opportunity to take a piece of bread representing Jesus' body that was broken for you at the cross. You're gonna have the opportunity to take a cup of juice representing the blood of Jesus that was spilled out as the payment for your sin. And as we take these elements, we are to remember Christ. As the Lord taught us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, 
4 and 25. It says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So today, guys, as we take these elements of communion, I want you to think about that word remembrance. I really, I want all of us today to remember Jesus. When, when we remember something, we reconnect with it in our mind and in our heart. So I want you to remember, re- reconnect with Christ today. Reconnect your heart and your mind with the fact that he died for you. Reconnect in your heart and mind with the cross, the sacrifice for your sin. Reconnect in your heart and your mind with the fact, the simple fact that we teach our children, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. Reconnect with the fact, this is a reality. Reconnect with this. All of your sins have been forgiven. If you are in Christ, the moments from years ago that haunt you are forgiven. The stuff that you might regret from the past 24 hours, forgiven. Reconnect with Jesus. Reconnect with the fact that you've been united into God's family. You are united with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are gathered on the Lord's day like this. Other brothers and sisters who are in other nearby churches. Other brothers and sisters from the churches that you came from. Look look around this room. Some of these faces you may not know. Some you do. But when we're coming to the table, just take a moment and look at the people who are coming to the table. This is our church family. Look at them in the eyes. Look at the children that are going to be coming to the table today. These are kids that are gonna grow up by God's grace serving the Lord and knowing him. So think about that word remember. Remember, reconnect with Jesus. Remember, reconnect in your heart with his church. Let me give you a few practical things before you come to the table. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and after I pray, the ushers are gonna dismiss you to come forward row by row. They'll start in the back and then work their way forward. So when they dismiss you, please make your way forward on these side aisles um, and then come to the center and return to your seat through the center aisle. I also want you to remember that this is a tradition that is only for believers in Jesus Christ. So I know we have children in the room today. So parents, you need to be discerning now with your children. Have they truly repented of their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If they have not, They do not need to come and take the bread and the juice, but they do need to hear from mom and dad about the grace of God. So talk to them about it. Adults, teenagers in this room, search your own heart. Be discerning on yourself. Have you truly repented and believed upon Jesus? Is your heart truly right with the Lord? If you have not ever repented of your sin and believed upon Christ, first of all, my prayer is that today would be the day you truly believe. And you can come and take the bread and the juice for the first time in a meaningful and sincere way. But if you have not repented of your sin and believed in Christ, then I want to ask that you respectfully 
Refrain from coming to the table and just stay in your seat when your row is dismissed. I promise you, nobody in this church is going to judge you or condemn you. Some of you may not be right with the Lord. You may have come to church today, but your heart is far from God. If that's you, I want to call you to do what the scripture tells us to do in 1 Corinthians. Examine yourself. Get your heart right with the Lord. And come to this table today. When you have confessed and gotten your heart right with the Lord, come to the table remembering that the bread and the juice symbolize the very sacrifice that was given to pay for the sin you're struggling with today. Remember grace when you come to the table. And after you come and you take the bread and the juice, you can take them back to your seat. And when your conscience is clear and your heart is ready, then you just take the bread and take the juice, take it on your own volition. You don't need to wait for any further instruction from me, but you can take it even if the band is playing, even if you need to sit there for a moment, uh, you take it on your own volition. All right, we'll pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, I am so grateful for those through the years who have been continuing to preach the gospel. Thank you for those who have brought the gospel to this area in my lifetime so that I could hear, and those of us who believe that we could hear. Thank you, O oh Lord, for those who have continued to preach the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help people in this room who are really struggling with why they're here. And they struggle to be in this area right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give them a bigger perspective of why they're here and that they would start to look for your reasons why you have them here and that they would look for the doors that you're opening to make Christ known. I pray, Lord, that um, when rejection or hostility comes our way, that we would remain faithful. And I pray, Lord, that we would see moments and glimpses of great reception to the gospel, that many would be saved. And I pray also, Lord, that you would let us enjoy our unity as the body of Christ and to live within the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that you have provided through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.